What makes a Buddhist monk? This is the motivating question for Thomas Borchert as he explores the social and educational formation of Buddhists from Southwest China. Borchert introduces his readers to the Dai ethnic minority community through vivid accounts of their local temples, village schools, and transnational connections in his new book, Educating Monks, Minority Buddhism on China's Southwest Border. He carefully draws out the social and political constraints in which Dai Buddhists must navigate, including both Chinese government policies on religion and how Buddhists interact with their co-religionists regionally and abroad. Educating Monks offers comparative multi-sided ethnography of Theravada Buddhism in the post-Mao period. In our conversation, we discussed how the monastic community is organized, curricular education, the monk's career, the Chinese Buddhist Association, transnational interactions and training, how Buddhism is governed in the modern Chinese state, and how the category religion is deployed in China. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. And now, my conversation with Thomas Borchert about Educating Monks, Minority Buddhism on China's Southwest Border, published by University of Hawaii Press in 2017. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Religion. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for, uh, for having me here today. Yeah, I'm glad we were able to, to talk about this wonderful book, Educating Monks. Um, I, as somebody who has uh, spent some time in this, uh, this area in China, uh, was excited to hear about communities that I wasn't really working on. Um, but uh, I want to uh, know a little bit about uh, what brought you to the study of religion in general, what brought you to the study of Buddhism. Um, who might be some uh, important mentors of yours or, or moments in your kind of intellectual career that uh, steered you in the direction you went? Yeah, so I um, uh, there are a couple different moments that, that I think uh, directed me in, in how I've ended up here um, at this particular point in time and, and working on this, this group of people in southwest China. Um, when I was 15, uh, I went to Japan to visit my older brother who was living there. And, and we traveled, I traveled around with my, my older sister and my, my older brother and, and was just fascinated by what I saw in, in both Japan, but also we went to Thailand um, where I, you know, again, I'm a, I'm a kid from Cleveland and, and was just kind of shocked by all the things that were were going on there. So when I got to college, I, I studied um, Chinese uh, because we didn't. I went to Swarthmore College, and they didn't offer uh, Japanese at the time. And um, I studied with a guy named Don Swearer, who is a who is a a, um, a scholar of Buddhism in Thailand, and. He really encouraged me uh, after I graduated uh, from college uh, to um, go to visit uh, both this place called Sipsong Bana in southwest China because he knew I'd studied uh, Chinese, um, but also that it was a it was a place in in um, it was a place that that was part of China, um, but it also had uh, a bunch of folks. Who were practicing Theravada Buddhism, and I'd I'd studied Theravada Buddhism with him in in college. Um, the 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 
this kind of crystallized though in a, at a couple of different moments um, in the couple of years after I, I graduated, uh, Don was working, doing research in, in, um, in Chiang Mai at the time. And, and I uh, had asked him if there were any opportunities to work in, in Chiang Mai or in, in, uh, in Bangkok that he knew about. And he found me a job teaching English to novice monks at a monastic high school in Chiang Mai. This is in the in the early nineties. Um, so I spent I spent about six months doing that. Um, and when I first got there, I had this this like overwhelming sense of awe, like oh my gosh, these are these are these novices. They they're on this religious quest to to find you know something. Um, I was living in a monastery at, at, at the time, uh, cause I could live there for, for free, um, in exchange for, for teaching English at the, at the monastery. And so I'm, I'm like living in this, in this romantic, uh, romantic world of Northern Thailand. And, and, and one day these novices come up to me after, after class and they say, you know, Mr. Tom, can, can, can we, can we talk with you about something? And I say, of course. And here I'm, I'm expecting some interesting, rich conversation about their religious life. And and they're like, Mr. Tom, do you know the song I Swear by All for One? <laughs> um, and I'm like, why well, no? I've I've never heard this song I Swear by All for One. And 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 they start breaking into you know two or three part harmony singing this song to me. And, and I'm sitting there going, wait a second, these guys aren't really concerned with a spiritual life. They're, they're concerned with pop culture. <laughs> um, and, and, and it kind of triggered me to thinking that, that the way I had been thinking about it and, and, and I'm treating religion um, and religious communities was it wasn't that it was wrong it wasn't that, that that Buddhist monks weren't interested in you know Buddhism but that wasn't all they were interested in uh, and and most of them lived you know complicated religious complicated lives that had nothing to do with Buddhism um, a little bit after that I I went up to I needed uh, you know I was living in in Thailand, but I needed a new visa. So I flew up to, I flew up to China where they had a consulate and, um, my, uh, and I flew down to Sipsong Pana at the, at the, actually I took a bus down to Sipsong Pana at the time. Um, uh, the, there was no airport in the, in the region. Um, and you could only get there by going from Kunming, which is the capital of Yunnan province, down to Jinghong by bus, which took about 20 hours um, through mountains. And, and so it felt very uh, isolated and, and far away from everything. Um, the, uh, so I, I spent a couple, a couple days there while I was getting my visa. Um, and I, and I wandered around and went to temples and, and this was the same time I was teaching, uh, novice monks, 
English at a, at a monastic high school in, in Thailand. And the, the, the thing I, I kept running into were, were all these novices, um, you know, and so, so novices as, as you probably know are, are, um, young men who are usually between the age of like, I don't know, nine or 10 and 20 who have left home. Um, they've, they've, they've ordained as, as a monk, but they're, they're not responsible for following all the precepts that, that, um, fully ordained monks are. So, you know, these are kids for the most part. And, and, and I kept encountering kids who were not in school. They weren't in public school. They were just living in, in monasteries. They would say, to, I, I'd ask them why they weren't in school, you know, why they weren't in the public school. And they'd say, well, that's stupid because we're, we're novices where we, we don't have to be in school. Um, and, and I said, where are the monks? And well, the monks, the monks around here. And, and, and so we'd have these long conversations about what they were doing. And, and, and I started to think that this was some kind of a, I don't know, ethnic resistance to being Chinese. Um, and, and, and in part, this is, this is one of the roles that, that Buddhism has in this region. But, but I, I thought that trying to figure out why these kids, why these young men were novice monks was, was really what, you know, and not normal, normal and not lay, just normal lay kids, why they weren't in regular, the regular school, why they decided to, to become novices, um, what they hoped to do with that uh, was really what kind of pushed me to, to, to going to grad school. I, I, it seemed at that point, there was a, there was a story that I thought was worth telling that I, that I didn't see anyone else telling. So um, after that, I went to grad school and got a job. <laughs> <laughs> Now, um, a lot, a lot of this work, uh, I think, was happening around the the time of grad school, and then I, I know you uh, made made a couple of return trips. Um, but can you talk a little bit about how the how this book kind of started to uh, coalesce around certain ideas or topics? Um, I know you're doing work there, and you're experiencing life in uh, southwestern China. Um, but when when did you really kind of get a grasp of um, kind of this these these multiple layers of um, monk education and state and uh, religious group kind of uh, interaction. Um, when did these themes start to kind of pull together for you? Um, so there were there were, you know, it's it it be it becomes hard to know like the moment when something crystallizes, um, because I the my first real research trip to to Sipsong Pana was in probably 98. Um, and my last, my most recent trip that affected this, um, this book in some ways was in 2011. Um, I, I think the 1990s, there was, uh, there was a lot of discussion that was going on uh, in the, in the broader academic community, both about um nationalism and the effect of nationalism uh, that had to do with the, the collapse of Yugoslavia and the, and the end of the Cold War. Um, and at the same time, there was a lot of discussion about uh, resistance and, and domination and, and the work of, say, Jim Scott um, in, in thinking about how it is that subaltern communities 
um, deal with the state. And so when I first started doing research on Sipsongpana, I was thinking about it primarily in terms of um, uh, nationalism, national identity, uh, the way in which uh, religion uh, gets articulated in China. Um, and it also, I mean, the, the other, there are, there are a couple other uh, things that are going on in, in China at, at the same time. Um, the late 1990s and the, and the early aughts is a period when it becomes possible to do much more substantial ethnographic research, particularly ethnographic research on religion, um, outside of something like Beijing, uh, outside of the major, you know, urban, urban areas. Um, and it, it's also a period in which scholars are really beginning to think about, uh, the way that, um, ethnic minorities are, uh, living in the context of, of, um, contemporary China, um, Again, you know, one of the important kind of basic facts around the, the work that I've done in Sipsong Pana is the, the fact that, that uh, China is a multi-nationality state, a multi-ethnic state, um, where there are some 55 different uh, ethnic minorities uh, that are recognized by the, by the national government. Um, and while the, the Han are the vast majority of the, the population, um, there are still, I don't know if it's, if it's like, um, 10 to 15% of the population is in our, our ethnic minorities, then, then we're talking about 150 million people. And the vast majority of these people are situated around the, the borders of China. Um, as as are the the daizu, the the folks that I that I have um, that I've worked with the most. So within China, national minorities become uh, you know a a site for thinking about the nation, a site for thinking about nationalism, um, and also a site for national security, uh, which is certainly what we've seen going on in the last couple of years with the, with the way in which the Chinese state, the Chinese government has um, put many uh, ethnic, and you know, many ethnic Muslims, the, the, the Uyghurs in uh, what are basically concentration camps, um, re-education camps in, 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 in the Northwest. The, the Daizu are not that, uh, Politically sensitive, um, they they've had generally a positive relationship with the Chinese government as as a group. Um, it is not a sensitive border in the way that the Northwest has been, um, but that becomes for me an interesting you know an interesting thing to think about is why it is that that this group hasn't had problems with the with the Chinese government in the way that the that the Uyghurs, for example, have. Um, so I came in thinking about nationalism and ethnic minorities and, and then, uh, well, and then just as I'm just at the point at which I'm, I'm really beginning to start research in, in, on, on the Daizu, uh, in 1999, the, 
the the Falun crisis, uh, sorry, the the Falun Gong crisis erupts in 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 China, um, and part of what that does is that it creates this context whereby um, the category of religion becomes a, a an important political object, uh, an important political subject. Um, uh, so, so we've got nationalism on the one hand, we've got the problem of, of religion, we've got, and, and world religion discourse, um, which is a part of this. And then, um, a, a couple times when I was in Thailand, uh, like, uh, for example, on my way up to, 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 to Siptong Pana, I would go to temples, um, either in Bangkok or, or Chiang Mai, and I would encounter, um, Dai monks, Dai Le monks, Dai, Dai Zhu monks in Bangkok and in Thailand, and I'd ask them what why why they'd come down there and and you know they they tell me they came down for an education. Um, so all of a sudden, in addition to the kind of problem of nationalism, uh, we then and and minorities within the nation state, we also and and then the the religion. Uh, the problem of religion in China. What 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 kept happening to me is I kept enca- encountering a, a, a the problem of the transnational um, in in the life of these monks, um, and, and so this in, instead of it becoming a a, a book about kind of uh, nationalism and, and, and governance of, of monks within a particular national context, uh, I had to begin to think about the way in which monks move as well as uh, monks being located in a particular place. Yeah, and this, I think, is one of the really interesting things about, uh, about the book is this kind of, uh, I guess what we call it, translocal, uh, kind of ethnography that you do mm. um, where you trace these networks. And, you know, I don't know a ton about uh, the scholarship on Chinese Buddhism, but I know enough to know that uh, this is, this is kind of a, a unique approach um, to kind of a, a lot of the work that's being done on, on modern Chinese Buddhism. Um, but uh, before you get to these kind of uh, networked um, relationships um, you really provide uh, a, a great snapshot of local Buddhism, uh, what I think you call village Buddhism. Mm. Um, so could you kind of just uh, lay out what's what's going on in this kind of localized Buddhism in the post-Mao period? Uh, what is What does a monk's career look like? Um, how is the, the monastic community organized in this, this kind of local... Uh, domain. Sure. So um Sipsong Pana is is a is a region that um shares a lot of similarities with uh northern Thailand um and uh, the Shan states in in uh in Myanmar. Um and what I mean by that is that um the the Buddhism in the region has tended to be uh very closely embedded in in society um they they practice temporary ordination so what that means uh is that uh 
a young man might ordain as a as a novice or as a fully ordained monk for a short period of time, um, and then disrobe, take you know, become a, a, a lay person again without any uh, without any difficulties, without any social social um, consequences. Um, or he could remain in robes for his entire life. Um, for most young men, up until the Cultural Revolution in, in this region, so Cultural Revolution 1966 to 1976, more or less, um, for most young men, what this meant was that uh, ordaining as a, as a novice or as a monk was an important part of becoming a full, fully recognized member of society, and so a, a lot of, a lot of people have said to me over the years that if you were a, if you were a, um, if you were a die male prior to 1965, uh, if you wanted to get married, you actually had to become a monk first. Um, so, so you know, from this we see that it that it's very much a part of what society, you know, the the, the way that that society has, uh, perpetuates itself over time. In the post-cultural revolutionary era, so we're really talking 1980 until the present, um, the, the relationship between being, being a, a die man and being a, uh, being a monk, th that relationship is, is, uh, severed to a certain extent. Um, that is to say, it, it is no longer a requisite of, of being a, a well-recognized die male that they, that, they, that they ordain, but at least for the first 25 years of the reform era, and so maybe up until a decade, a decade and a half ago, uh, it remains really common for most boys to ordain as novices. Um, not required, but, but, but extremely common. And so for most of them, what this means is that they're learning, uh, they're le learning how to read the, the local script. Um, and the, again, the local script is very similar to Northern Thai. Um, they're learning how to, uh, uh, chant Pali. They may be learning some protective rituals, um, uh, and depending on the, the 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 temple that they live in and the the abbot of the temple, they learn much. They may end up learning a whole lot more. Um, and and so they you know they do this. They're in the road. They're in robes. You know, living in the temple for a couple of years, and then most of them will disrobe. Uh, one of the things that that's also going on, and and I you know I talk about this a little bit later in in the book. Um, uh, when I'm, when I'm talking about education more specifically is, is that the, you've got these, these pressures from the Chinese state and, and just the economic development going on in China that have an impact on the way that, that, um, Dai men, that the Buddhism is situated into Dai society. Uh, so Historically, again, pre-1965, the, the institution of the, of the, the monastic institution was fairly decentralized. Uh, there was a, there was a king, 
um, and there were some royal monks, but there's a fairly decentralized um, aspect to life. You know, each each kind of village center um, has its own senior monk, and and those senior monks uh, interact largely with the with the senior monks of of the rest of the region, and and most monks. Most monks, most people stay fairly locally. Um, one of the things that, that, that happens in the post-cultural revolutionary period is that uh, the Buddhist association is established in Sipsongpana, um, the, a, a local office. And the, the Buddhist association is a, um, is a quasi-governmental organization that is established by Buddhists uh, in order to serve as a mediator and as a as a link between the Chinese government and uh, and Buddhists, so so they are responsible for making sure that that Buddhists, Buddhist monks, Buddhist nuns, um, understand what the rules are. They're also supposed to you know with the with the the regulations and rules. Um, uh, that the that the government is promulgating are, um, they also advocate on behalf of Buddhists. So they may be running uh, specific institutions. Um, uh, you know, they may be responsible for managing temples in, in various uh, Buddhist sites across the country. And in Sipsongpana, um, it it's the the establishment of the Buddhist Association has meant. Uh, ultimately, that that there has been the development of a more centralized uh, institution that manages monks and temples in the region than had existed uh, prior to 1965. Um, so, you know, to go back to your original question, what the or your earlier question about what what the what the kind of career of a monk might look like. Uh, there, there seem to be two different in the in the current moment. There seem to be two different kinds of uh, career paths for for monks. Um, a bunch of them will, uh, you know, one, one of these paths is that a, a young man will ordain. Uh, he'll learn how to be a monk. He'll he'll learn how to um, uh, to chant and to read in in Daila. Um, and then he will disrobe and and either be a uh, a peasant, you know, he'll work uh, as a rice farmer or a vegetable worker or something like that, um, or maybe a trader uh, uh, around the region. the The other pathway is that they will tend to go into um, a a higher level of of monastic education. Uh, so they'll attend a monastic high school, um, uh, and that then opens up other doors for them in terms of educational opportunities, which again I, I, I talk about uh, later in the book. Um, and and so uh, and then that opens up to them uh, a variety of other opportunities, either as a as a professional monk or as a uh, a monk who's received. Uh, a, a more substantial education. Um, but the, 
the the thing that that I really try to do, at least in the in the first part of this book, in uh, of the book, in the, the, the chapter one, local monks in Sipsongpana, is to emphasize the fact that on the one hand, you've got these kind of long-standing kind of practices of ordination and Buddhism within village life, um, and yet at the same time, there is a there's a long-term process. Um, of of change that's going on, particularly in the post, you know, in the reform era from from 1980, 1980 onward, as Sipsong region becomes more tightly integrated into uh, the Chinese political economy. So, so that uh, in a sense, um, China or the idea of China or Chinese governance is kind of increasingly pressing on uh on on what were relatively long-standing relationships and and ways of organizing society the the government or the state kind of you, you talked a little bit about this in terms of their role um in the chinese buddhist association but i think uh many listeners that maybe are not familiar with kind of how religion works in china mm. um would, and I know you kind of deal with this in interesting ways in the book and in your your work since the book. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, discourses, policies related to the category religion. Um, how does your uh, work here in the book kind of fit into that conversation um, in terms of this kind of relationship between uh, local Buddhist, the state, governance, um, and, and the kind of the role of religion here. Yeah. So one of the things yeah, I, I mentioned earlier, the, the kind of the, the Falun Gong crisis. And, and I think this is, so this is around the year 2000. And I think this is a, an interesting moment um, in kind of current, you know, recent Chinese history, because if we look at the, the history of the reform era, um, Part of what's going on in the reform era is the the central government is trying to figure out how to deal with religion as as a whole. You know how to deal with religious actors, how to deal with um, uh, uh, minority religious actors, because they found that in the Cultural Revolution there was a this strong attempt to just abolish religion from society, and it didn't work. So in, in the early, early 1980s, late 1970s, early 1980s, the, the government um, finds itself in this position where they want to shift from a policy of abolishing religion to a policy of, of regulating and managing religion. Um, and the Falun Gong crisis, and I'll, I'll you know, explain that in a, in, in a second, the Falun Gong crisis becomes an interesting moment because it 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 fractures the way in which the, the Chinese government has sought to try to regulate and manage religion. Um, the, there are, there, I think over this kind of 40 year period, there, there are two different aspects to the, to the management and the regulation of religion that I think are important. One of the aspects is that the government engages in what we might think of uh, as as a um, world religions discourse, um, 
they seek to define religion uh, and 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 explain what kind of religion is okay and what kinds of uh, maybe religiosity are not okay. So um, in, a, in the 19, in the 1980s and in the, in the 1990s, this is articulated most clearly in terms of the of two categories that we'll call normal religion and feudal superstition. Um, and, uh, and, and so normal religion are things that include the, the five religions that the Chinese government uh, re- recognizes, which are Buddhism and Taoism, uh, Christianity, Islam and Catholicism. Um, you know, they split the Chinese government splits up Protestant forms of Christianity and Catholicism into two separate two separate groups, uh, two separate uh, religions, as it were. Um, and 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 so it likes you know what kind of group what what kind of makes these uh, phenomena religions in the eyes of the Chinese state normal religions. Um, is that they're old, they're complicated, uh, they are mass-based, um, and by complicated, I mean they have like a, a rich textual and philosophical history, th- things like this. Um, what counts as feudal superstition are tend to be practices which are individually focused, um, which includes sorcery of various sorts or divination, uh, a, a lot of what we think of as popular Chinese religion, uh, actually. Um, but in a lot of ways, it seems to me that the what is important about, or what, where, where the distinction really lies is it, it, it ends up being kind of an empty signifier for the things that the Chinese government feels concerned about um, and, and is, is uh, uh, wants to, to control or to regulate. Um, the, so the, the idea about religion here, religion and feudal superstition, and then in, in, uh, in after the crisis of the Falun Gong, uh, the addition to these two categories of evil cults, so we have religion, feudal superstition, and evil cults, is that it it establishes or it uses a discourse about religion to give the government uh, the flexibility to um, engage in ideological warfare against uh, religious phenomena that it feels uncomfortable with. Um, so the, the, the category of, of, uh, uh, evil cults or, or feudal superstition can be deployed, um, against, against groups that it doesn't like. Um, the, so, so we've got, on the one hand, we've got this kind of discursive ideological way of, of, of managing and regulating religion. Um, and on the other hand, you've got, uh, a, a set of institutional structures um, that are are established um, to regulate re- religious actors as religious actors. So, so they include, on the one hand, um, organizations like the Buddhist Association, which which has a uh, uh, a national 
you know, both both national offices, but also uh, local offices. Um, and, and then you've got the uh, the religious affairs bureaus, um, which has gone by a variety of different names over 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 the years. Um, during most of this millennium, it's it's been run by uh, the State Administration for Religious Affairs. Um, though that was just abolished or, or dissolved in, in the last year and, and folded into the uh, uh, United Front Work Department. Um, and, but, but this kind of the religious affairs bureaus were the government workers, the, the, the party members, the, the state's formal uh, apparatus in institutional structures for managing and interacting with uh, with religious actors, because one of the things that that, that is also important um, is that uh, there is a, a a real concern by the Chinese government, kind of in the long and medium durée, to keep uh, to, to to keep the party members divorced from religion. They don't want party members to be entangled with religious communities because religion is an alternative source of loyalty. And this is, you know, which is one of the reasons why, why, why the Chinese government has, has long tried to keep um, also their Marxist and they don't like religion that way. But, but, but it's this kind of alternative source of loyalty that, that presents them with, with, with a real challenge. So you've got, you've got these kind of this, this discursive, uh, these discursive tools for managing religion and institutional tools for, for managing religion. Um, and one of the things that I, I, I talk about is that these have consequences for the ways in which uh, the, the, the Daila monks can uh, live their lives. And, and, and I, in, in, in the book, I, I give this example of, uh, of a, a group of, of uh, Han men who come down to Sipsong Bana and set themselves up as monks who tell fortunes. Um, and uh, this would be, you know, in, in, in Thailand, something like this would be illegal because it's illegal to impersonate a monk. Um, and but but not in China. So the 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 monks that I work with in the Buddhist Association ended up having this this challenge because they did not have they 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 had these they had these guys who were imitating monks and and impersonating monks and 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 like um uh ripping off tourists um as they were fortune tellers um. And they, the monks, didn't have the tools to try to, uh, um, to, to, to get rid of them. They, they needed the government, they needed the government's help to, uh, to arrest these monks. Um, and they invoked, you know, in a lot of ways, they, they invoked the language that the government uses um, of, of feudal superstition and things like this to try to get the government to... Uh, to, to arrest these monks. In the end, the government um, arrested these monks primarily for reasons be, that, that, that 
followed the government's interests. They did not. They weren't. They weren't concerned with the monks, um, with the monks' interests. They, but but they were concerned that these that these false monks were uh, were uh, ripping off tourists, and the economy of the of of Sipsongtana relies heavily on tourists. So. One of the conclusions that I that I draw from this is 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 you know what I've been implying up to this point, which is that the there is a very strong uh, world religions discourse within within China, and in some ways this helps people like the monks of Sipsongbana because it's given them the opportunities to um, to to rebuild their sangha, uh, to rebuild their monastic their monastic institution, uh, but. It is a it is a set of discursive tools that the, that the government is, has established for its own purposes, um, and so these monks find themselves in a position where they have a relatively they have it's not that they have no tools, um, but 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 they're in a very much a subaltern position in, in in terms of of managing their 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 religious lives um, in relation to the state. Mm-hmm. Now, um, through your ethnography, you you kind of expand from the the local scene, um, and you kind of follow monks in a way into uh, to larger and larger schools, uh, both within the region and then kind of transnationally. Um, can mm-hmm. you kind of walk us through uh, what some of those settings look like? What's happening in those places? What are some of the curricular goals for monks at a kind of higher level of, uh, of education. Um, yeah. What was your experience in these, these kind of places? Well, so, so I, I think there, there, um, in, in thinking about that, I, I think it's worth also kind of thinking about the, how it is that monks move in the first place. And, and, and the, the thing that I started with, again, to go back to this idea of the of local monks of, of Sipsongpana is that most ethnographies of Theravada monks um, have tended to be fairly village based, um, and they have tended to not pay attention to the degree to which um, monks move either either in the in the current moment or or historically. Um, the and 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 part of what I I encountered is that monks, uh, the monks of Sipsongpana at least, were were moving a, a good deal. They were moving around to, um, they were moving you know across villages uh, to to uh, go you know let's say a little a boy grow, grows up in a in a in a village that doesn't really have any novices. So he might go to the neighboring village to, to, to get an education. Um, they, the, the monks of Sipsong Bana also established a monastic high school uh, in Jinghong, the capital of the region. And so novices were traveling from their regional villages to, to the capital for an education. Um, and then when when the when they finished in that situation, you know, when they finished at that at that monastic high school, the monks at the at the at the um, monastic high school in Jinghong at at, at Wapajea would often send 
monks and novices to uh, monastic schools around uh, to a variety of different places to to uh, the monastic schools of of China. So they were sending Theravada monks from Sipsong Pana to Mahayana for uh, Shui Yuan or or Buddhist institutes. Uh, where they might get something that resembled a, a junior college education. Uh, but they also sent them from Sipsong Pena down to Thailand, uh, where they would go either into a, uh, uh, a Naktam course, which would give them a, 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 an education, a, like a three-year education as, as, a, as a monk in, in Thailand, uh, or they would also learn Pali in, in, in Thailand. Uh, and very occasionally they would, uh, the, they would send monks to even further away to a place like, uh, Singapore. Um, so in fact, I, I start the book with, with this encounter, uh, that I had in, in Singapore in 2010, where I was, I was doing a, uh, I had a fellowship at, at the Institute for Southeast Asian Studies um, focused on Buddhist networks uh, in Asia. And in 2008 or nine, there was a, a, a new, a new um, school that was opened up in Singapore, the Buddhist College of, of, of Singapore. And, and the Buddhist College of Singapore, it was mainly established in order to um, foster the training of Chinese monks in Mahayana Buddhism, uh, but through an English language medium. Um, and so I, I visited the Buddhist College of Singapore and, and sorry, and most of the, the, the monks, most of the students at the Buddhist College of Singapore are uh, from the People's Republic of China. So I visited there a couple of times and, and, uh, uh, I was asked to give a, a lecture to the students, who were all monks, um, about something. And so I decided to, to give them, you know, to talk to them about Sipsong Pana. And I knew that most of the students were from China. So, so I said, so I, I assume all of, you, all of you know who the, the Daizu of Xishuang Pana are, um, using the Chinese terms. And all of them pointed to a particular monk, and I'm like, "Oh, why? Why are you doing that?" And it turned out that he was he was actually uh, from Sipsong Pana, uh, and 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 so you know I was in this kind of weird position where the the the, the white the white American scholar is <laughs> is giving a lecture to the to the Chinese monk about his own his own region. Um, so. In other words, these the at what part of what happens and and that I talk about in the book is that education becomes a really important vector for uh, monk enabling monks to travel um, regionally, nationally, and and transnationally, um, and they end up. They end up in in a variety of different institutions, which have a variety of agendas for for what it means and what they want um, uh, uh, a monk to to be, um, and 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 so we, in thinking about this, uh, 
we need we need to think about kind of three different levels of, of agendas. You know, you asked what kind of monks these 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 schools are trying to produce. I think we need to ask three different questions. What is it that the that the that the young men are trying to get out of this? Um, what is it that the that the Sangha of Sipsong Bana is trying to get out of this? Because it's the Sangha of Sipsong Bana, the senior monks of the region, that are sending these these young men uh, to to places around um, China and around Asia. And then what what are these what are the institutions trying to get out of it? Um, in, in, you know, in terms of the first, most of these young men are simply seeking more opportunities for study. Um, they, they, most of them feel that they have a strong responsibility to their community to become better educated. Um, and they, they see Buddhist education as, as a way of, atta- of attaining that. Um, the Sangha of Sipsong Bana, the senior monks of the region, are really engaged, it seems to me, in this project of, A, fostering that, that sense of responsibility in the, in the, in the novice monks. Um, but they're also concerned with maintaining Buddhism. And they see maintaining Buddhism in the region, um, you know, with, with kind of the goods. They, they see Buddhism as, as uh, threatened by economic development, by, by uh, a strong Chinese identity as opposed to a, a, a Dai Le identity. Um, and they, they see the education system of the region as being against Buddhism and not very good. So when, when they're sending their young men to education places, you know, to educational institutions in, 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 Sipsong Pana in China, in Thailand, um, and and elsewhere, what they're really trying to do, it seems to me, is develop uh, human capital uh, in order to maintain the Sangha of Sipsong Pana. You know, they want they want to create a, a, a whole series of of smart, uh, well educated men, some of whom are monks, some of whom are not monks but all of whom feel a responsibility to, to, to Buddhism in the region. Um, and then these, I guess we might call them transnational monastic institutes, um, are really very diverse in, in their agendas. Some of them um, are uh, national institutions, so the, the, you know, and should be, should be seen as such. Um, and some of them have a much, much, much broader uh, agenda. Um, the the Foshui Yuan, the the Buddhist institutes of, of China, end up, it seems to me, having a very strong have, having to foster in monks this uh, ideology of of Aiguo um, Aijia, which means you know loving the country, loving literally means love, love country, love, love, love religion. Um, but it, what it's, what it seems to me uh, is being about is about a concern that comes from the state about the need to develop patriotic forms of Buddhism uh, that are embedded in and subservient to notions of Chinese nationalism. Uh, 
so so the the young men of Sipsong Panar are exposed to this. Uh, they are also uh, exposed at the same time to some of the the uh, monastic schools of Thailand, which have that that same kind of uh, agenda of developing a a a Buddhism which is uh, subservient to Thailand or or deeply tied into Thai forms of of nationalism, but at the same time what you've what you've also got going on in Thailand is this interesting um, effort on the part of some of the some of the Buddhist universities in particular, like uh, Mahachula Longkorn uh, Buddhist University, to foster the notion that Mahachula Longkorn Buddhist University is actually uh, the center of the Buddhist world. So it becomes kind of like a modern day Nalanda, Nalanda University that, that Buddhists from the Buddhist monks from all over the, uh, all over the world can come and study there. Um, so one of the interesting things this, that, that this does is, is that, or, or kind of looked at in total, we, we see these, these novices become, uh, part of multiple different kinds of, of, of Buddhist worlds or as, you know, Buddhist ethnoscapes, um, where they are, they're imagining themselves as, um, as, as local actors, they're imagining themselves as, as, as part of national forms of Buddhism. Um, but they're also imagining themselves as, as part of trans trans local forms of Buddhism. Um, and the, you know, in, in a sense, I, I, I open and close the book, um, with, with the question of, of what is it that makes a, a, a Buddhist monk, you know, how is a Buddhist monk produced? And in some ways, there's not a, there's not a, a, a single answer, right? You know, it, some books or some articles that people write have this clear kind of question and, 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 uh, you know, an articulated answer. I, this book opens up with a series of layers and, and I spend the, I spend much of the time disentangling the layers. Um, so in some ways, what, it, what, what I've done in the book is not to provide an answer of what is it that makes a Buddhist monk, but, but, but to provide, um, I, I hope that this complex, complexifying layers of, there are a lot of different things that make a Buddhist monk and we have to, we have to pay attention to them in their kind of, their, their local and their personal uh, answers to what that is. But, but there are these constant ways in which national politics and, and, and transnational politics uh, also press upon the, the choices that, that these young men make and, and the opportunities that are, that are available to them. And so, um, you know, as, as I said, there's, there's not a, there's not a single answer, but there, there are lots of different answers about how, um, the, the contemporary Sangha is coming into being, but that we need to pay attention to all of those different layers. Yeah. And, uh, it's a wonderful book, Tom. And I think both people, of course, that are working on religion in China will benefit from it. Uh, but I think those that aren't even working on Buddhism or China, uh, should pick it up that are in the study of religion. I think it makes um, some interesting contributions. So uh, I hope they'll 
they'll they'll take a look. Um, Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Before I let you go, can you tell us a little bit about some of the stuff you you're working on now? Yeah. The um, so one of the things that that I have found interesting about the Dila uh, is the way in which they are um, they have a complicated citizenship status, um, which is to say they are they are political citizens of China. But in many ways, they are cultural citizens of of the the greater Thai world, and in in particular of Thailand. Um, and so I started to, in in as I was finishing this work, I was also beginning to think about what it means for monks uh, to be political actors and to be political agents. Um, we often think about monks. Uh, if we think about monks, we tend to think about them as people who are uh, outside of the world, and in, in you know, as 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 uh, otherworldly ascetics, to in 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 the kind of old Bavarian terms. But monks are people, uh, and and they're often uh, citizens. Um, and and so that means that you know for the for the dilo as 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 I was working with them, and I would encounter them in 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 Thailand, I was I would ask them you know what how do you cross borders because you know I can't cross the border from uh, Myanmar or Laos into China without a visa. Did did they have passports? Um, how did, what were the, what were the regulations that, that governed them? Were they the same as, as other citizens or were, or were they different? Um, and you know, the answer it turns out is that they are a little bit different from other citizens of, of China, but, but what the, the salient distinction is not the fact that they are monks, but the fact that they're ethnic minorities. Um, and so they could cross overland without a passport. Um, the, but, but this, these kinds of questions got me thinking about, as I said, the, the, the question of what it means for a monk to be both a religious actor and a citizen at the same time. And so for the last, uh, four or five years, I have been, um, uh, doing research specifically on, on, uh, Thai monks as citizens. Um, one of the interesting things about, about, uh, Thai monks is that although they have a very high status in society, um, they are disenfranchised. Uh, they are they are precluded from voting in in the many different constitutions that Thailand has had since 1932, um, which means that they are both really valued, but also in some ways uh, exceptional to and outside of society. Uh, and so I have I've been. Uh, since 2014, really, I've been um, in, in uh, two or three different research trips. I've been uh, interviewing monks in Bangkok and in Chiang Mai about their attitudes towards their political status. Uh, you know, whether they agree with it, whether they think that that, that monks should be allowed to vote, things like this. Uh, the other thing that I've that I've been kind of encountering. At the same time, which has become a part of of of, of this project, is 
uh, questions of Islamophobia among Thai monks, um, we become pretty, uh, unfortunately, uh, we've, we've become aware of the degree to which uh, discourses and uh, kind of practices of, of Islamophobia have become widespread among the monks of Myanmar and, uh, and Sri Lanka. But this hasn't really been a big issue in Thailand. Um, but one of the things, and, and, and so like in my first work on this in 2014, uh, I would ask monks, which is right about the same time that, that the crisis with the Rohingya in Myanmar was really becoming more uh, widely known uh, internationally. I would ask monks in Bangkok what they thought about Muslims, and all of the monks that I would that I would talk to were basically, well, you know, they're our neighbors. You know, those those Muslims over there, they're they're fine. We don't, you know, there are other places where Muslims are a problem, but in Thailand, they're just they're just Thais. Um, but in the last few trips that I've taken to Thailand in 2017 and 2018, uh, I've encountered far more statements that uh, resemble the uh, kind of Islamophobic statements that, that one hears out of, uh, out, of, out of Myanmar, the kinds of um, kind of demographic anxieties that one hears, that, that, that Muslims are trying to take over the country, that uh, that that um, they're a threat to Buddhism, um, you know, and these of course are patently absurd. Roughly ninety percent of the Thai population it, it calls itself Buddhist. There's no way that that Buddhism is going to disappear um, in many lifetimes from 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 Thailand. So so the emergence of this discourse is 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 of course troubling, um, but it's also uh, I I think really interesting to, to, to explore. So uh, I hope to go back to Chiang Mai, where I've encountered far more of this Islamophobic discourse, and begin to interrogate and, and interview monks about uh, how Islam fits into the, the, the national ideology uh, and, and the way that Islam and, and, and Buddhism fit. Um, because I, I think if we, if we begin to understand how Thai monks are are how they see Islam. We can begin to to think about uh, other ways in which to avoid the kinds of conflicts and and crises we've had and in, in uh, we've seen in, in Myanmar in the last couple of years. Well, Tom, you got a lot a lot of work to do. It sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thanks for taking the time to uh, to talk about this wonderful book, and I, I wish you luck on uh, on all these great projects. Thank you very much, Christian. Thanks for listening to New Books in Religion. That was my conversation with Thomas Borschert about educating monks, minority Buddhism on China's southwest border, published with University of Hawaii Press in 2017.